Welcome to Redemption Church. You're listening to our weekly podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Well, hey there. Good morning, guys. Welcome to Redemption. My name is Byron. I get the great privilege to serve here as lead pastor and church planter. If you're a guest, thank you so much for hanging out and worshiping with us today. We are going to continue our sermon series through the book of James, bold words from Jesus. Brother, before we do that, I've got a couple of quick updates um, for you guys. Um, Every single winter, so far in the history of our church, um, we have partnered with an organization called Hills Hope. And Hills Hope provides um, relief and, and funding and support for the homeless and for the impoverished in our area. And so this year they asked for us to partner with them by providing socks and towels for our brothers and sisters in, in need. And so we want you guys to participate in what, in what they've invited us to do. Last year we did a coat drive and I think we gave away like six to seven hundred coats together as a church, which is absolutely amazing. And um, I believe that we can do something very similar today, uh, this month of November, with socks and towels. And so all the month of November, come on in, bring socks and towels, new, not used, but socks and towels, so that way we can, we can be able to help our, our community, especially after things like Hurricane Harvey, when there's going to be a lot of people who are in need. And, and so that's what they've asked us to do. And we said, yes, because audacious generosity is a core value for our church. Amen. And so we're going to respond to the needs of our, of our city through that. And then one more thing, um, this week starts the very last session of Grow Class for 2017. And, and so if you want to know a little bit more about redemption, you want to get connected, you want to get involved, you want to learn about Jesus and how you can serve here at the church, Grow Class is for you. So we want you to get involved in that. So with that being said, we're going to jump into our sermon on James, and I'll, I'll, I'll let you know up front, today's going to be a little rough. Okay, so go ahead and put your seatbelt on, hold on to your seat. Um, it'll get better, but it's going to be a little rough. With that being said, let's pray. Um, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your son, Jesus. Lord, that you have sent your son to, to save us, to redeem us, to ransom us, and to rescue us from our sin. Father, we were separated from you, lost, that we were... Um, children of wrath and that we were just gone. But you sent your son Jesus to, to make a way possible that from enemies to family, from foes to friends, and that you would give us a church to love and serve together. Lord, I ask that the Holy Spirit that you have caused to indwell inside of us, Lord, will transform who we are, that we will change, that we'll love and serve and we'll, we'll grow in our relationship with you. And, and Father, we ask that the lesson that James was teaching his church would be a lesson that we learn for our church because we really do believe that you have great big plans for us individually and corporately. And um, if we get this, man, we will be unstoppable. And so I, I praise you for that. And we ask in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, so we're in church. So nobody lie. How many of you have ever been in a fight? Like, like a real fight. Not I got beat up by my little sister right when I was 12. Okay, but, but a real fight, a knockout, drag out, a bloody nose, full-on fist fight. Thank you. You can put your hands down. You're a bunch of heathens. Okay, um, I've actually never been in a fight. Okay, I know that's hard to believe. I have been beat up twice, um, but I've never been in a fight. I think you actually have to get a punch in in order for it to be considered a fight. But, but nevertheless, I, I've never been in a fight, but I have seen a couple of really cool fights. You want to hear about one of the fights? 
It's actually pretty good. Um, uh, when I was in high school, I had a friend named Michael. And, and me and Michael, we had a lot of classes together, and so we'd, we'd hang out a lot. Now, Michael was, uh, he was a short, short guy. Um, he, he was short, he was skinny, he was kind of a scrawny, like nerdy guy. But me and Michael, we were, we were really good, good friends. And in 10th grade, we had this one class together, and there was this other guy who was like a bully. I mean, he was just this big guy, and he'd always pick on Michael and call him names and, you know, just, just tease him. And so um, one day, he actually stole Michael's backpack and, like, started taking all the stuff out and started kind of hiding it and putting it in other places. And this day, I don't know what it was, but Michael just, just snapped. Um, that's, that's what it was, because he jumped across the room on him like a spider monkey, just grabbed him and just threw him on the ground, jumped, the guy fell, and Michael's just on him, just pounding his face. And we're like, whoa, this is amazing, whoa. And, um, and so the guy's trying to get Michael off of him, and he's kind of pushing him like this, and there's a, Michael grabbed his foot, pulled his shoe off, and then proceeded to beat him in the head with his own shoe. Um, it, it, it was great. There's nothing more humiliating than getting beat with your own shoe. Um, so, but, but how many of you have ever been in a fight? Okay, probably not to that extent, right? But you've been in a fight in, in some way. Now, the truth is, we're all in a fight. Now, we're all in a fight every single day of our, of our lives. That you will get in a fight, you have been in a fight, we are in a fight. Sometimes we fight, sometimes we fight relationally, husbands and wives, sometimes in our, in our families, brothers, sisters, children. Sometimes we fight with our coworkers or our bosses. Sometimes we fight in college with our classmates, and sometimes we even fight in the church. And I know you think, no, no way, God's people wouldn't have those sort of problems. Ah, nevertheless, trust me, they, they do, and we can even fight in the church. And so all of us, we're going to have conflict, we're going to have arguments, and we're going to get in a fight. And today, that's what James is talking to us about. Pastor James is talking to us about what do we do when we fight. Now, some of you, you don't want to fight. Right? You want to sit on the sidelines, you're like, I'm just going to sit over here and I'm just going to be very peaceful and nobody's going to bother me. Okay, not going to happen. Because um, you will get in a fight. Inevitably, someone is going to say something to you, you're going to disagree, you're going to debate, you're going to get frustrated, you are going to get in a fight. And what Pastor James is talking about today, he's not saying if you get in a fight. He's saying when you get in a fight. So when you get in a fight, you're going to need to pick a side. Now we all have to pick a side. And, and here's what he's saying. There's two sides and there's worldliness, and then there's godliness. And so that's the big theme of the day. James' bold word for the day is worldliness or godliness. And he's going to be writing to his church. And so if you got your Bibles, we're in James chapter 4, verse 1. And here's what Pastor James says to his church. He says, what causes the quarrels and the fights among you? Now, this is James' sort of introduction to the argument that he is going to be having with his church. And so his church is arguing and fighting, and he says, he says, what's causing this fight? What's causing this quarrel? Why are you acting the way that you're acting? Why are you doing the things that you are, you are doing? What is, your, what is your problem? Basically, that's what, what, what James is saying. Now, now think about it. How many of you have ever been so frustrated with someone, or you get in an argument, or you get in a fight, and then you go and you tell somebody else? You know, you don't go talk to the person, you go talk to somebody else. And you say, you can't believe what they would do to me. You can't believe the way that they acted towards me. You should have seen what, what they did. I see that person, and you go and you tell someone else. But 
what's interesting is that they probably go do the same thing about you. And so they're going to someone else and they're telling someone else about you and what you did and then word gets back about what they said, about what you said, and then you're like, that's not what I said! And then there's this big whole argument and this big whole conflict and nobody knows whose side of the story. Parents, you totally understand this. Right? You have two kids and they're, they're arguing and fighting. You walk into a room, there's a broken lamp and two kids are crying and you're like, who hit who? We gotta get down to the bottom of this. That's exactly where James is at when he's when he's writing to his church, he says, do you want to know why you're always angry? Do you want to know why you're always frustrated? Do you want to know why you can't get along? Do you know what, want to know what the problem is? I'll, I'll tell you. Here's, here's what your problem is. James diagnoses his church. He says, is it not this, that your passions are at war within yourself? That you desire and you do not have, so you... So you murder, and you covet, and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. That word quarrel means literally war. So you, you fight and you war. So you do not have in you because you do not ask. And you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You notice James' language is getting a little intense. But you spend it on your passions, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. That word enmity, it, it means hostility, it means opposition, it means resistance and rebellion against God. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, who wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I want you to know that James is no stranger when it comes to conflict. James would have encountered fights and conflicts similar to this for most of his life. James is the little brother of Jesus. They were half-brothers. And so growing up with Jesus, James probably saw his brother get in a lot of fights. Jesus was always in conflict. Everywhere he went, people were arguing and rejecting him and criticizing him and speaking evil of him and diminishing him and opposing him in his his, his ministry. And so for those of you who are like, well, I'm going to become a Christian. Everything's going to be perfect. and I'm never going to have any problems. And I'm going to be just like Jesus. Okay, wrong Jesus. That, that's not our God. That's not our team. Okay, as a Christian, you will have these sort of conflicts. And Jesus had it. Because when Jesus walked around, people hated him. They, 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 they criticized, they crucified, they murdered our Savior. And so yeah, Jesus Jesus knows what it's like. And James saw all of that. And so after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, when he ascended back into heaven, James became a Christian. And so James starts to worship his big brother as, as God. How many of you have a hard time worshiping your brother as God? Yeah, that's exactly what James does. James starts to worship his brother as, as God. And as he begins to follow Jesus, he actually joins the first church. We see in Acts chapter 1 that, that James, he, he began to serve in the very first church. So he's unloading the trailer, and he's on the serve team, and he's setting up the chairs, and he's adjusting the lights and the coffee. Like, that's who James is, and he's, he's working in the first church, and the church grows. And people start meeting Jesus, and people get saved, and people get baptized, and on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit falls, and 3,000 people believe, and the church, church is off. And it keeps, keeps growing, and in the midst of all that growth, there's massive opposition towards the first church. People are being fought and argued with and debated and persecuted. So much so we see that in Acts chapter 6, a, a young deacon named Stephen was actually murdered because, because he loved Jesus. 
during the course of this time, there was a massive persecution across the first church. We call it the diaspora. And that the church was actually dispersed. Because of the persecution, they had to leave Jerusalem. And so they started sending out missionaries and church planters to other cities and to other countries to be able to continue to spread the good news about Jesus. And so a lot of people left, but James, he stayed. James stayed in Jerusalem to pastor, to pastor this church. And more people keep meeting Jesus, but eventually James actually succumbs to this conflict and this, this fight, and James dies like his brother Jesus. Okay, church history tells us that, that um, James actually became a very prominent pastor in the church of Jerusalem. And as people were meeting Jesus, the religious leaders, they didn't like this that people were turning from their religious traditions and trusting in Jesus. And so, so they wanted to put it into it. And so they called Pastor James and they said, James, you have to put a stop to this. You have to tell all these people to stop worshiping Jesus, to, to leave the church, and to, 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 to end this thing from happening. And so they grabbed Pastor James and they actually brought him to the top of the temple, which is where God's people would worship at. And they brought him to the top of the temple and they said, recant! So James stands up there at the top of the temple. He holds his hands up. He says, Brothers, Jesus is Lord. And they push him off the top of the temple. And he, he falls several stories until he hits the ground. But James doesn't die. And that James actually picks himself up and on his knees with broken bones, bloodied, battered, bruised, picks himself up. And he, he cries out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He says the last words were the same words his brother Jesus prayed as he died for our sins. And, and James prays for his church. And, and someone picks up a, a brick, crushes his skull. James falls down dead on the doorsteps of his church. That's James. And so when we talk today about things like fighting, conflict, war, okay, I want you to know that these aren't hypotheses. Okay, these aren't just like best case scenarios. What James is writing from is he's writing from a deep place of pain. James experienced and walked through what he's talking about. This comes from his experience. This comes from his, this comes from his pain. And so when we listen to James talk about worldliness and godliness, James knows what he's talking about. Because James knows the devastation of what happens when a church walks in worldliness versus the destiny of a church when they receive and walk in godliness. And so, so James wants us to seriously consider what side that we're on. And, and he starts off by saying, here's your problem, that you are at war. He's going to give us three wars, uh, wars of worldliness. He says, your problem is, is that you are at war, and the war starts internal. Okay? He says, your passions are at war within yourself. Your war is internal. Now, what we want to do is we want to point at other people. Right? We want to go, oh, you can't believe them. You can't say what they did. Oh, you should have seen the way they treated me. James is like, nope. Don't start out there. Start in here. But the problem is you. That the war is internal. That you desire, yet you do not have. You have these desires. 
that your passions, your pleasures, things that you really want in your life, if you could just have these things, then you will finally be happy, you will finally be satisfied, and then life will be exactly the way that you always want it to be. I have to have it. And so you have these desires, and they're at war within yourself. So what is it that you think would meet your greatest needs? What is it that would meet your greatest desires? Is it, is it money? A, a lot of people turn, turn to money. And they think, if I just get this job, if I just make this money, if I could just buy these things, then everything's going to be the way that I, I want it to be. And so I think it's interesting. I listened to a podcast the other day, and they um, talked about a, an article um, to where they went around, they asked people of various income levels um, how much money it would take for them to be happy per month, more than what they're already making. So they went and they found people who made about $25,000 a year, and they said, well, how much more money do you need to be happy. And they said $1,000 more a month. Okay. So they went to people who made 50000 a year and said, how much would you need? And they said, $1,000 more a month. And then they went to people who made $100,000 a year and they said, how much money a month would it take for you to finally be content and happy? Guess what they said? $1,000 more a month. See, nobody is content and happy with their state of income because the more money you make, the more money you spend, the more opportunities you have, the more responsibilities you have, the more that you will never be satisfied. We're never satisfied. There's something that we must have that we have to get, and it's out there. It's not, it's not working. And so we chase our desires from other places. Some people look for their desires in people. Some people it's money. Some people it's, it's sex. And so you really crave closeness and, and intimacy, and you, you have these desires, and you, you want to act upon these desires, and so you go outside of God's will outside of marriage and you give of yourself to other people, whether through pornography or through casual sexual encounters or hook up, shack up, and you give of yourself because you have these desires and you need these desires to be met. Some people look for money. Some people look to sex. Some people just look to power. Say, if I get this job, then I'll be the boss and I can tell everyone else what to do. And then they have to look up to me and then they have to like me and they have to respect me and then they have to do what I say. See, some people really have power struggles. Some people, they turn to religion. They say, well, I'm a better person than them. Oh, you should see how I pray. You should see how I read the Bible. You should see what translation I use. You should see the way that I dress. You should see the way... That's garbage. But people turn to other things all the time because they think this is what's going to satisfy me. And so they give of themselves because they have desires, passions, pleasures. And the war is not out there. The war starts right here. And James says, no, don't go look at all these other people. I want you to look at yourself. Don't go out, go in. So the war starts internally, but very quickly it moves externally. That, that it goes from the heart into the hands. And then you come to war with other people. James says, murder. You murder. Now some of you are like, never murdered anybody. I'm not a murderer. Now, what James is saying is probably a real thing that's happened in his church. Remember the conflict that they're going through? So James knows. And so some of you are like, no, that, that's not me. That's not my problem. Well, Jesus says anyone who hates another is a murderer. Well, Jesus is being hyperbolic. Surely Jesus wouldn't really mean that. That's, let's, just, let's just move past that. He was just using an analogy. He doesn't really mean what he's, he's saying. Uh, yes, he does. Let's not move past that. Let's, let's talk about that for a sec. Jesus says, if you hate 
someone else, that's murder. What if I just really don't like them? Same thing. If you really don't like someone, murder. If you resist someone, if you ignore someone, if you wish that someone was not around because they don't have anything they can give to you, murder. And we'd say, I didn't kill anybody. Meanwhile, there's a trail of dead bodies following us everywhere we go. Because of the war, the body count keeps rising. War with others. He says you murder, and then he says you, you covet. That, that you're a coveter. You're like, I don't even know what that means. Right? We don't really talk about coveting very often. It's not like we're going to get the elders of the church together, and we're going to sit down with you, and we say, okay, church discipline, guys. Okay, you're a coveter. You're like, coveter? I don't even know what that is. How am I, how am I a coveter? What does that mean? Okay, it is one of the Ten Commandments, so that means it's a big deal. Okay? It means you want something that someone else has. What? That's all of America. We want what something someone else has. They have a nice house. I don't have a nice house. I'd really like a house. Or they have a nice car. I, I drive a, a beater roller skate car. I would like to have a really nice car. Or, or, or they're well and I'm, I'm sick. I, I'd really like to be well. Or they have kids and I don't have kids. I'd like to have kids. Or they're married and I'm single and I'd really like to be married. Or they're, or they're single and I'm married and I'd really like to be single. Right? And so we, we want what other people have. That's all of us. And James says, that's sin. That's covetousness. That's one of the big ten. And he says, and you're so busy comparing yourself to other people that you've never even turned and thought considered to ask God. That you haven't even asked God for what you wanted because you're so busy consumed with other people. And God said, if you would just ask me, then I'd be willing. However, because you ask me for the wrong reasons, you get nothing. And now, let's think about it. Is it wrong for us to turn to God and ask Him to bless us? No. Not at all. Is it wrong for us to pray for healing when we're sick? No. Not at all. Is it wrong for us to pray for financial means so that way we could pay our bills and have enough money to take our wife out to eat? No. There's nothing wrong with those things at all. We're actually commanded to pray for those things. So what's, what's James' problem? James says that you ask so that you can have, so that you can spend them on your own passions. Okay, let me ask you a question. If God were to answer every single one of your prayers, whose life besides your own would be different? Right? He says, you ask and you do not receive because you ask with the wrong reasons, the wrong passions. Listen, God is not in the habit of giving away idols. He, he's, he's not. Now, he doesn't want to give you idols. So, so think about it. If you're praying for, for a new job, say, God, I need, I need more finances. I need more income. Right? God's like, why? So you can just spend it on other things and not actually contribute to the kingdom of God? Why would I, why would I give to that? Or if you're a young man and you're praying, say, Lord, please send me someone. God's like, why don't you know how to talk to women already? Right? You don't respect women? Why am I going to trust you with one of my daughters? Why would I do that? If you don't know how to, to talk to a woman, to respect a woman, why would I give you one of my daughters? Because you want to spend it on yourself. So that, that's idolatry. That's exactly what that is. That you, you run to 
God when you want something and then you run from Him to the world when you can't get what you want. That's, that's idolatry. That's, that's spiritual adultery towards a living and a holy God. That's, that's what it is. For you, God is a, a genie and you, you rub the lamp and He shows up, He answers your three wishes and then you can have your best life now. That's not the way this works. So James starts off by saying the war is within yourself, but then it moves external that you war with others. And that's typically where we want the war to stop. Right? Look at them. Look what they have. Look what they said. Look what they did. James is like, no. Look at you. Look at who you are. The war starts internal. And then it moves external. But ultimately, the war is eternal. That you don't just war with yourself. You don't just war with others. Ultimately, you war with God. Here's what he says. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity, hostility, resistance, rebellion, war, enmity with God. See, James is really turning up the language here. He says fighting, conflict, murder, idolatry, adultery. It's kind of a big deal. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world looking for your pleasures, your passions, your desires, and other places apart from God. Friend of the world. Makes himself what? What's the word? Enemy of who? God. You are an enemy of God. Some of you have been lied to. You've been told that if you're just a good person who thinks good thoughts and people like you and people look up to you and people respect you, then God will save you. That's a lie. It's a damnable lie. You are not a friend of God. You are an enemy of God. You are living in spiritual rebellion and opposition towards a living and holy God. That's what sin is. Sin is rebellion against the living and holy God. You are not a friend of God. You're a friend of the world. And God says, you want to be a friend of the world? Fine. Enjoy your stuff, but know this, that one day this world will burn and you could burn along with it. And that the first time Jesus came, he was a suffering servant. But the next time he comes, he's a warrior king with fire in his eyes and a sword in his hand, waging war against the world, against Satan, hell, and demons, and he'll chop you down too. And some of you think, well, not me. I'm going to sit over here on the sidelines, and I'm not going to pick a side. I'm just going to sit on the fence. I got bad news. The world owns the fence. And some of us, we keep buying into this. This insatiable, insane nonsense. Like, I just need to be a happy person. I just need to follow my heart. That's insanity. It's worldly. It's wicked. And some of us, we are living in the path of the wrath of God. The wrath of God. It's mentioned more than 600 times in the Bible that God is holy, that God is just, that God is pure, and that God is without sin. And if God was just to wink at your sin, He would cease to be God. So who do we think that we are to point our finger at God, to tell God who He should be, to tell God what He should do, to tell God what you want Him to do? Who do we think we are? You are, you are not a judge. You are not a king. You are not a god. You are a coveter. You are an idolater. You are an adulterer. You are a murderer. You are not a friend of God. You are an enemy of God. And then James uses another word. He says grace. But God gives more 
grace. How many, when I was yelling at you, you thought, this is very offensive? It's because it is. Our sin is very offensive. But when we see who we are and how God responds, doesn't that just show us how great He is? That we were enemies of God. And He gives more grace. Wow. How many of you, when I was yelling, you thought, I really hope that there's more to James than this? Right? If I were just to shut my Bible and say, you're evil, you're wicked, figure it out, best of luck, I'll see you later. Right? Like, what hope is there for me? What I love about James is that James is, James is tough, but he's also very tender. And that, and that James, he, he really does love his church, and he really does want his church to grow, and he really does want to see God do amazing things in their life. I had a friend text me this week, and she said that hard words make soft hearts, but soft words make hard hearts. James is very challenging for us. But James never leaves in guilt. See, some pastors, they love to take texts like these and they'll like to make you feel guilty. And so they'll say things like, like, you're evil, you're wicked, and just leave you in that. But James, James doesn't do that. James says, God gives more grace. There's always grace redemption. There's always more grace. Where, where sin increases, Paul says, grace abounds. And so James is wrestling with this church around this idea of worldliness and godliness. And he's, he's shown us worldliness. And now he's going to talk to us about what it means for us to live a life of, of godliness. And here's what he says in verse 5. He says, Or do you suppose that it's to no purpose that the Scripture says that he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell within us? James doesn't skirt the issue. He says, you know what? Yeah, you have committed spiritual adultery. You have been unfaithful to the Lord. You have turned your back on the Lord. You have walked away from the Lord, but the Lord still pursues you. But He's never given up on you. He's still passionately desirous of a relationship towards you. That word yearn means passion. It means desires. See, God has desires too. And that God's desire is the spirit that He has caused to live within you. And God desires that the Holy Spirit would take up residence in your life and that you would be transformed by the work of the Spirit. God desires that for your life. And then James continues and he says, but God gives more grace. Therefore, it says that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. This really is the crux of James. Not, not just this section of Scripture, but the entire book of James. That God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Pride is worldliness. For you to think, oh, I can do it on my own. I don't need God. I don't need God to tell me what to do. I don't need God to tell me how to live. I can do this on my own. This is what I want. This is what I need. This is how I want to live my life. That's pride. God opposes the proud. You'd say like, oh, I know God gave me the Word, but I'm not going to read that. I know God gave me the church, but well, I don't really want to get connected with those people. 
I, I know that God's given me a pastor to, to love and to teach and to serve, but I'm not going to listen to him. I know God's given me a community group and Christian friends to hold me accountable, but I, I don't want to listen to them either. I'm just going to do my own thing because this is my life and I can just live how I want. That's pride. And I'll tell you this. Pride is what got Satan kicked out of heaven. It's not going to be what gets us in. Augustine, the early church father, he says that, he says that pride is the mother of all sins. God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. If you just come to Him and you would admit all the things you already know about yourself, He'll forgive you. Say, yeah, I'd love to save you. I'd love to serve you. I'd love to bring you into my family. I'd love to turn you from an enemy into into an heir. I'd love to take you from a foe into family. And if you would just come to me, repent of your sin, turn from your sin, trust in me, I will give you grace. I will give you redemption. I will give you mercy. I will give you myself. If you would just humble yourself. And I love that James says that grace is a gift. Because that's, that's really what it is. That it's unwanted, un, unwarranted, rather, unmerited favor. There's nothing you could do to earn it. There's nothing you can do to lose it. There's nothing that you can do but to receive it. And that it is a gift that God is, is wanting to give to us. That He is reaching out. He's reaching down to, to save us. And thinking about this idea of, of, of gift, we're coming up to Christmas. Okay, All of you moms, don't freak out. It's, it's coming. Okay, We're coming up to the, the Christmas season. And Christmas really is a season marked by two things. Generosity and what? Greed. Basically, worldliness and godliness. But nevertheless, it is a season of, of gift-giving. And Have you ever gotten a really good gift and you're, you're about to receive it and you're like, wow, this is going to be great, right? right? You're anticipating, waiting for that. Well, how do you receive a gift? Well, two things. First, you have to like, actually realize that they have something that you want. Like, I got this gift for you. Like, yeah, I, I, I want that. Right? And so, how many of us want what the Lord has? Eternal life, grace, redemption, salvation, right? Yeah, we want what the Lord has. The second thing that you do to receive a gift is what? You open your hands. You hold your hands out so you can receive it. And what, what God is saying is, I have this amazing gift called grace, and it's yours. You have to open your hands. And redemption, you cannot open your hands if you're holding on to the world. You can't. He says, lay it down. I'll give you my grace. This idea of grace is a very important subject. And so I don't want to just like blow past it real quick. I really want to kind of talk about it for, for just one more moment because it, it really is important. When you, when you come to redemption, okay, we're grace junkies. Okay, that, that's what we are. We love grace. We need grace because we're all sinners. We've all sinned. We will sin. Right? We're totally jacked up and we're all people in a process. And so we need that more grace that God promises. So praise God for, for more grace. And what you'll hear when, when, when you come to redemption is this. I'm like a broken record every single week. It doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, what others have said about you, or what you have said about others. Jesus saves. It doesn't matter. Rich, poor, young, old, black, white, Latino, Asian, Democrat, Republican, doesn't matter. Jesus saves. That's what we're about. And so, so we call people to Jesus and we celebrate this amazing saving grace that Jesus has for us. But here's the problem. As, as many of us, we, we kind of stop there. 
be like, yay, Jesus saved me. Okay, no, there's, there's more to it than that. More grace. And so what James is getting at is another dimension of grace called empowering grace. Okay, now there's like 13, um, there's 13 aspects of grace, and we're not going to talk about all of those today, but, but one of them is this idea of an empowering grace. And so, so we're saved from our sins, but then God gives us the Holy Spirit so we can overcome our sins. That, that we're saved from our sins and then God gives us the Holy Spirit to indwell in us, to empower us so that way we can overcome our sins. So we don't have to live the same life that we've always lived. We can live this new life. And here's, here's what this new life looks like for us. Is it starts with our desires. That we have new desires. So the things that we used to do, the things that used to give us all those passions and pleasures and our happiness that we've always wanted and always need, no longer they satisfy Eventually, like the old hymn says, the things of this world become strangely dim and we have these new desires. And, and I want to read my Bible now and I want to pray now and I want to walk with Jesus now and I want to serve in a church now. I want to be connected and I want to tell everybody about this amazing grace that I've received. I have these new desires. New desires then moves into a new identity. The way I see myself is different. The way I act with others in the world is, is, is different because of who I am. And who you are determines what you do. And so our identity determines how we live. And so no longer am I that child of wrath. I'm a child of God. No longer am I lost. I'm found. No longer am I damned, but now I'm saved. No longer am I unloved. I'm loved. And this culminates into this new identity and the way that we live in relationship with other people. And then from desires to identity, then it moves to destiny. That our entire course of life begins to change. That God opens up opportunities and doors in the course of our lives and then we continue to grow and mature and then we meet Jesus and we spend eternity with Him in this new destiny that we have. That's the work of the Spirit in the life of a believer. Now I want to show you this. This is pretty cool. Okay, So what is the work of the Spirit? Empowering grace. It starts with desires, identity, destiny. Internal, external, eternal. See, the world is just a counterfeit of what God has for you. That's all it is. That you're at war, internal, external, eternal, when God's promised peace. Internal, external, eternal. That's what it means for us to live in godliness. That we walk in peace with God and others and that we receive the grace that God has for us. Isn't grace amazing? It's such a beautiful gift that God gives. And here's, here's what I've discovered in life, is that there really is two types of people. There are people who pursue happiness. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Right? And then there are people who pursue holiness. And, and, and what I've discovered is that the world wants to sell you happiness. Buy this, come here, be this person, do these things. It wants to sell you happiness. God wants to give you holiness. It, it's yours. It's available for you. I'll walk with you. I'll carry you along the way. Now here's, here's what I've discovered. Two types of people. Okay. People who pursue happiness, rarely happy, never holy. But people who pursue holiness get both. That they would receive both. Some of the happiest people I know in my life are the holiest people that I know. Because they love the Lord and they serve others and they receive the grace that He has for them. They say, whatever situation or season or circumstance 
that's going on in my life, it doesn't really change who I am or the way that I live because I trust the Lord. And He's going to provide for me and He's going to take care of me and we're in this together. And, and so holy people are very happy people because they trust in the Lord and they walk in godliness. And this is what James wants for his church, that we would be a people who walk in godliness. And so what does it look like for us to, to walk in godliness? James continues in verse 7. He says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. I want you to notice, the language for James is still pretty strong here. Hey, how many of you glad I'm not still yelling at you? All right, good, good. Um, and so James is really not letting us off the hook. The, the language is pretty strong because he doesn't want us to be able to diminish our sin, but to see it for what it is. He says, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil of one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you are the judge, then you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Now, James gives seven ways in which we can walk in godliness here. Now, I'll say this. Um, I could preach this eight-week sermon series over each one of these, okay, but I'm not going to do that today. Um, I'm just going to touch on each one, and we'll just kind of move past and talk about this awesome example of what Jesus is doing in our church. And, but some of you, you're still thinking, um, why eight weeks if there's only seven? Okay, because I have to have a whole week just to set it up for you guys. But I'm not going to do that. Um, and so here's, here's what it looks like. There's seven ways in which we can to walk in godliness. He says, first, we need to submit to God. Okay, that, that's really the big step. Like, that's the first step. Just submit to God. Here's what submission means. Jesus is Lord. I'm not. That Jesus is King. I'm not. Jesus is God. Jesus is judge. I'm not. And so I'm going to lay my life down for him and I'm going to let him be in control. And I'm going to trust him. I'm going to serve him. I'm going to submit all of my life under the lordship of Jesus. Because Jesus is a better king. Hey, listen. You're a terrible God. You are. You're just a terrible God. You're terrible to yourself. Right? No one's lied to you or deceived you or talked as bad about you as you have. Okay? Like, so you're not a good God and you're not good to yourself. And so... If we submit to the Lordship of Jesus, He's a good King. And He'll take care of us as His people. And so we first submit to God. That's, that's the big deal. And then it says to resist the devil. Okay, life, life is war. <laughs> We're always going to be in a fight. That there's always this spiritual opposition. If you live in submission to the Lord, you will walk in spiritual opposition from the devil. Now, here's what I've learned. People are not our enemy. Okay, you need to remember that. One of the hardest lessons I've learned, when I'm fighting, when I'm arguing, okay, I think they're the enemy. No, they're not the enemy. It's, that, it's the, what's at work in them. And so, so we, we resist the devil. Now, when temptation is coming our way, when, when we're in the middle of the argument, when we're in the middle of the war and the fight, what do we want to do, right? We say, oh, okay, i got to resist. Now, we hear resist the devil, and we think that means to 
retreat. Right, I just need to, I need, I need to pull back. I just need to, I need to grit, grit my teeth. I need to white knuckle my seats. And I say, I don't want to give in. I don't want to do it. I don't want to fight. I don't want to do it. Okay, I'm trying to resist the devil. <laughs> That's not resisting. Right? Resistance is actually a military term. It means to war, to stand your ground, to hold your post, to persevere, to attack the gates of hell. That's what resist means. That you war against the devil. Now, hear this. As Christians, we don't fight for victory. We fight from victory. Because Christ has already won. That death has already been defeated. And that the grave is empty. And so we fight from a position of victory. But you will still have to fight. And so we do need to resist the devil. So number three, it says to draw near to God. When the, when the bullets are flying, when the battle is raging, when you're in the middle of the war, where do we turn? What do we do? Where do we go? Draw near to God. And then He will draw near to us in that moment. See, temptation, opposition, will come your way. But you need to know that if you draw near to God, He will draw near to you. Now, oftentimes what we want to do when we're in the middle of sin or temptation or fights, we like, I can't go to God because then God's going to get angry at me and then God's going to be mad at me and then God's going to know what I did. He's God. He already knows. Like It's not like He's in heaven going, oh my me. I had no clue. Right? God already knows. So you can go to Him and you can talk to Him and He'll draw near to you and that because He loves you. And so we need to draw near to God. And this is really important. I feel impressed by the Spirit to tell someone this, that you're walking through hell right now. And the Lord wants you to know that He's never been closer to you than He is right now. And that if you would just turn to Him and draw near to Him, He will meet you there. So we need to draw near to God. And then fourth, it says to clean your hands. Okay, I want you to notice the language that's here. Okay, clean your hands is fourth. Right? Submit, resist, draw, then clean. Oftentimes people are like, you need to clean your hands before you come to church. You need to clean your hands before you come to the Lord. Religious people would love to say, you need to clean yourself up. Okay, James is like, that's fourth. There's some other things we need to work on first. Like submitting to the Lord. Let's work on that one. Resisting the devil. We'll, we'll, we'll work through that. Drawing near to God. Okay, But then you do need to know that God will clean your hands. That your life will change. And it will begin to look different. And it will become holy. And you will become godly. And there's some things that God's going to work out of you. I was talking to a friend um, several years ago. Uh, a guy that I led to the Lord. It was amazing because he said to me, he said, um, he, he was my neighbor. And he came up to me and my wife, Ashley. And he said, um, hey, Byron, I know you're a Christian and you're planting the church. And you've talked to me about Jesus a lot. And um, so how do I repent? I'm like, whoa, this is the first time anyone's been like, how do I repent? Normally I'm trying, you repent. Um, but um, so he said, oh, hey, I'll, I'll, I'll pray with you now. He said, okay, um, do I have to quit smoking weed to become a Christian? Um, he smoked a lot of weed. Um, uh, and I was like, no, you don't have to quit smoking weed to become a Christian. He's like, oh, wow, cool. Do I have to stop living with my girlfriend in order for me to become a Christian? It's like, no, you don't have to stop living with your girlfriend to become a Christian. Like, do I have to stop having sex with her in order to become a Christian? He's like, nope, you don't have to do that either. He's like, well, what, what's the deal? I said, you just repent and trust in Jesus and he'll, he'll save you and you'll become a Christian. He said, that sounds amazing. And I said, but when you become a Christian, you won't be smoking weed like that. 
And when you become a Christian, God's going to work that out. You won't always be smoking weed and you probably might marry her very soon when you become a Christian because God's going to change those desires that you have. But I say you don't have to clean up to come to Jesus. Come to Jesus and then Jesus will clean you up. Amen? And then number five, he says, he says to purify your hearts. Here, James is still using that strong language. He says, he says, weep, mourn, right? Turn your joy into tears. He's still very strong. But he's saying you need to purify your hearts. How often do we actually repent over our sin? Or do we just try to move past it? Are we grieved by the sin and what we do? Just as God is grieved for when we sin. James is saying you need to purify your hearts. Keep going back to the Lord. Say, God, here's a place in my life that doesn't line up with your word. God, here's a place in my life that I'm not trusting you. God, here's a place in my heart that's sin. We need to purify our, our hearts. And then he says to humble yourself. Okay, it's about humility. That we would humble ourselves. See, oftentimes the world would say, no, humility is not a virtue. Humility is a, is a vice. And that if people see you humble, they're going to take advantage of you. And then they're going to manipulate you and they're going to push you over and they're going to walk all over you. And you can't be weak. You need to be strong. So you need to be smart. You need to be successful. You need to be proud. God's like, no. It's about, it's about humility. And, and here's where it gets confused. Some people think that humility is thinking less of yourself. Like, oh, I'm just a nobody and can't really think very highly of myself. That's not what humility is. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. You say like, okay, God loves me. God's saved me. God's served me so I can go serve other people now. That I can give of myself so that more people meet Jesus, so that we would humble ourselves. And then he says, do not judge. Here's what I do. If you're anything like me, here's what I do. Okay? When someone sins against me, I call a court date. And I bring all my friends in. And I sit them over in the jury, and then I, and then I, I, I line my enemy up in front of me, and I sit them there, and I said, here's what you've done. You did this, you did that, you did this. And I tell all my friends, and then I get behind, and I sit down in the judge's chair, and I render a verdict, and I say, guilty. Anyone else? Okay, maybe the Holy Spirit will convict you later. But me, that's what I do. And, and so I, I hold my own hearing, and then Jesus walks in the room. He's like, nope, this is wrong. Okay, get off the chair. You're not a judge. I'm going to sit in the chair. So Jesus goes and sits in the chair. He's like, Byron, you stand there. They stand there. Jesus reads. He says, guilty, the both of you. You're guilty for what you did. They're guilty for what they did. Penalty, death. And then Jesus gets up from the judge's bench. He walks around. And he says, I'll die in your place. That you don't have to kill them and they don't have to kill you because I'll die in both of your place. That we don't have to kill one another because Jesus died for us. Friends, this is the gospel. That Jesus died in our place and so the war is over. You can lay down your weapons. You don't have to fight the war is over, and Christ is won. G.K. Chesterton, um, a, a British author, was, was asked, during World War I, 
what is the problem with the world? He said, me. I'm the problem with the world. Why do we fight? Why do we quarrel? Why is the world the way that it is? You. But here's the good news. Jesus died in your place. So the war inside is done. You can become a friend of God. So what does this look like for us as a church? Very practical, quickly. Um, Two things. Repentance, reconciliation. Repentance means turning from your sin and trusting in Jesus. Reconciliation is when Jesus brings two parties together and makes them family. That's what Jesus wants to do in the life of the church. Repentance and reconciliation. So I'll share with you in in closing um, just an amazing story of what Jesus is doing in our church because this is a very hard lesson for a lot of churches to learn. In fact, James Church never learned this. And according to church history, after James' death, the diaspora got so bad, the church in Jerusalem actually closed. And it was, I believe, a hundred years until another church was reopened in the city because of the conflict and problems in which they're experiencing. And, and many churches argue and fight and split because they have conflict and they don't know how to repent and they don't know how to be, to be reconciled together. And so here's, here's something that Jesus has done in our church. Um, several weeks ago, um, there were two people that kind of got in an argument. Um, someone said something to another person that was very hurtful, very cruel, and actually sinful. And the other person was, was wounded. They were hurt. And, you know, to be honest, they had every right to feel the way that they, they felt because it was sin. And that person realized it for what it was, that it grieved the heart of the Lord and it grieved them and that it was sin. And so... So they repented publicly, not publicly, but to that person's face rather, um, and went to their house and knocked on their door and said, hey, here's my sin, here's what I did. Please forgive me and help me. And repented to them. Not just like, oh, hey, I said some things, I'm sorry you got offended about it. Like, that's not an apology. And they said, hey, please hold me accountable to this. And they're still loving and serving in the church today. That's a powerful example of the gospel on display in our church. That most people would just leave or or go find another church or or take shots at them while they're walking out. No, these people didn't do that. They loved one another. They served one another and they've forgiven each other. And so because Jesus died, they don't have to kill one another and they can be a family. What would it look like in all of our lives if we learned this invaluable lesson? What would it look like for you in your marriage if you learned repentance and reconciliation? What would it look like in your job if you learned repentance and reconciliation? What would it look like for college or for family or for your children if you learned this idea of repentance and reconciliation? I believe James is a hard book, but James has good truth. That if people were to see our church living this out, they would say, what in the world is happening downtown? Why do people live that way? Why do you serve that way? Why do you give... Why do you participate in that? Why do you hang out with those people? You don't have anything in common with them. And then you would say, it's all because of Jesus. That the war is over. We're family and there's room for you too. That's the message of James. Redemption Church meets every Sunday morning on Crockett Street at the gig. If you would like to know more, you can find us online at www.redemptiontx.com or join us for one of our two services at 930 
or 11.15 a.m. Sunday mornings in downtown Beaumont. Kids are welcome too. We are Redemption, and we would love to meet you.